The Buddha's teachings are very vast. There's many different techniques that are offered within these teachings. Sometimes for us as practitioners, this is confusing, that we feel like we aren't quite sure how to practice, what technique to use. And um, it leads to doubt and uncertainty. And yet, if we practice by paying attention to how we are practicing, we will really come to see for ourselves what is useful, helpful. And, you know, in in the hall, in the world, I mean, we live in a time when we can be exposed to many different teachers, many different ways. You know, we have the Internet that will just bring us (laughs) all kinds of teachings. You know, we we live in a country where... um, Asia is coming to meet itself in a sense, you know, where for many years Tibet, you know, had mountains between it and any other country, and, and the teachings from there were very sheltered within that country. Uh, in Asia, you know, in Burma, it was a country, you know, that um, very much stayed within the confines of, of its borders. And suddenly there's a great meeting of all of this in the West. And so... There's a beauty to it, and it will challenge us. But it's really been my own experience that if one can relax with how one is practicing, keep it as simple as possible, and if you're getting really set instructions, follow those and see the effect of it. Pay attention, not Uh, just blindly practicing, it will become clear. And there was something that once happened around Ajahn Chah. Um, I I seem to love the teachings of Ajahn Chah. I resonate a lot with many things that he said. And so one day there was a group of travelers who went to visit Ajahn Chah. And... uh, they had three elegant questions. They said, why do you practice? How do you practice? And what is the result of your practice? And they were sent as a delegation by a European religious organization to ask these questions (laughs) to a series of great masters throughout Asia. Ajahn Chah closed his eyes. He waited. And then he answered with three questions. He said, Why do you eat? How do you eat? How do you feel after you've eaten well? And then he laughed. Later, he explained that we already understand and that teaching has to direct students back to their own inner wisdom, to their own natural dharma. Therefore, he had reflected the search of these men throughout Asia back to the greater search within. All of the instructions we receive are to help us to discover 
this innate wisdom. Sometimes even that is scary for people. That we may hold deep within us, and I'm not trying to make light of the pain of this, but holding deep within us an idea that we, of all the people on the planet, are the one that is fundamentally flawed. We are the one that this innate wisdom is not accessible to. (laughs) It's a really scary belief. (laughs) It's heavy. And I don't know, I would guess that many of you can relate to it. It's not true, (laughs) you know. There's one place we can take great inspiration from. If we just look back through time, you know, stories of disciples in the time of the Buddha. Some of these disciples experienced the most intense suffering. You know, women who went absolutely crazy with the pain of loss of a child or loved ones. You know, that were naked, running naked through life, in despair, just completely lost inside their minds, and were able to awaken. There is the story of, I've heard him called the dullard. You know, somebody who, who probably just, I, I don't know what their mind was like, but, you know, maybe um, had a simple way of seeing things, and the Buddha was able to find you know, a really simple practice where this being could awaken. Murderer. You know, somebody who had murdered 999 people. I don't know if any of us would fall into that category. <laughs> you know, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> But, you know, that's pretty heavy suffering. That's pretty heavy karma. And that being could awaken. It's pretty amazing. You know, I find it quite awesome. And that, you know, that that capacity is there within each of us. And it's just a way of really beginning to see for ourselves what obstructs clear scenes. What are these habits of mind? You know, last week I talked about right view, which I want to just talk about a little bit more tonight, although tonight's talk is on a different different subject but related. But it, it somehow plays in. So just to spill the beans on where we're going tonight, uh, I want to talk about mindfulness of the mind. Because this mind, you know, well, I'm pointing to here, but, you know, Asians would point to here. Okay, we don't know where it's located. (laughs) But this mind is where wisdom happens. This mind is always here right now. This mind is always doing its job. We just fail to see what it's doing so much of the time. 
And if we can really learn to pay attention to the mind, it makes for a really direct way of looking to coming to understand this mind-body, coming to understand the nature of this mind, coming to you know, just kind of break this veil of delusion that happens when we don't pay attention to what this mind is doing. It begins to make for a wonderful way of practice that really leads us to seeing for ourselves in our lives what leads to less suffering and what perpetuates suffering by just paying attention to what this mind is doing. And I know for many of us, that's quite daunting because for a number of reasons. (laughs) One is, you know, in our practice, many times we have been very object-orientated, and that could be physically, the body, the breath. And this may have been very useful. It's not to diminish this. But... It can also happen that if we've been so focused on this body, sensations, rising and falling, we don't even notice what the mind is like that's aware of these sensations. You know, we we may not be aware of that the mind really wants to get something from this. Or we might be not even aware that there's so much aversion in this mind that is paying attention to these sensations, that it's just trying to get rid of experience. And, you know, it's creating all kinds of tension, but because it isn't recognized, it's just driving the show. Before I go any more into the mind, I want to go back to right view. Right view, some of you weren't here, just to refresh memories of those of you who were here or to just say a little bit more. It's a view that is in accordance with the way things are. A view that is not fighting with what is. It's being able to see things in their nature such as seeing sadness in its nature, seeing anger in its nature, seeing joy in its nature. And by seeing it in its nature, it's seeing that it has certain qualities to it. It has characteristics that helps us to distinguish anger from joy. You know, that there's different qualities that are present. But anger has a particular nature, and that nature would be the same for anybody who experiences anger. There's also, that makes it universal in its nature, and then there's also the the nature by which all of these experiences are impermanent, insubstantial, interdependent. 
When we're seeing things with right view, we're seeing anger as the nature of anger rather than wrong view that says, I'm angry. This is me. I am this. When we see it with right view, we see that this anger has come about through causes and conditions. It's like, you know, making a stew. You put certain ingredients in it, and it's going to taste a certain way. The same with these states of mind. Certain ingredients come together. It's the nature of fear. It's the nature of peace. It's the nature of calmness. It's just the way it is. This is a really helpful piece of information to have because then when we find that we're really stuck in some mind state, that anger's there and it is my anger, we might remember this piece of information and this information, just even though it's not fully understood, it's not fully grokked, <laughs> it's, it's just it's a thought that points the mind in the right direction, and this thought that, okay, there's anger here, can I just know it as anger? can really lead to a shift in the mind, a spaciousness. It can help bring in a spaciousness where, you know, as soon as we're saying, I'm angry, that fuels it right there. Where when it's just the scene that this is just anger, it's not fueled in the same way. Really, any time you have the chance in your practice to play with this, to see, you know, just noticing, yeah. this is me, I am this, you know, where we're stuck. You know, let this be a place to play around, to look, to see if you just remember, okay, this is just, this is, so it's sadness. This is just the nature of sadness. Is there any shift that happens? just to see if it's, not, if it's not so strongly identified with. Is there an effect? When we can see things in their nature and know that things are un- uh, unfolding according to natural laws, we then aren't defining self by it. You know, so it means that every time there's an unpleasant experience, it doesn't mean it's because you're not good enough. You know, and that happens so much in our meditation practice. You know, that if we were a better yogi, we wouldn't be experiencing the pain in our knee. You know, that somewhere this is a failing. If we were a better yogi, we wouldn't be thinking. 
<laughs> you know, it's all just unfolding according to natural law. In order to understand right view, to really know the freedom that it brings, we have to pay attention to all that goes through the mind, to this whole process of identification, grasping. And, you know, that was originally what I thought I was going to talk about tonight. But then I realized, you know, if you're not, if we don't really know how to even recognize the mind, how are we ever going to be able to pay attention to this process of identification? So tonight, I want to work in some quite simple ways with, on one level, I want to say demystifying the mind, and yet the mind is, it's awesome, right? You know, that Wow. (laughs) There is this capacity to know. This is what the mind does. It knows. And, you know, that knowing is nothing we ever manufacture. That knowing is just simply there. I mean, many times it's unrecognized, but it's there. You know, as we're sitting here in this room right now, so many things can be known. You know, we can know experiences in the body. We can know about the environment. We can know thoughts. We can know mind states. And You know, when the mind is undistracted, when this little I-me mind gets out of the way, it's already happening. We just need to see it. Yet, for many people, it's a bit fearful, scary, to go from working with objects and, you know, awareness of how objects are behaving to look directly to the mind because, on another level, it's very elusive. It doesn't feel substantial. When we look, I mean, you know, right now, just looking to see the mind. Does it have shape? Does it have form? 
Does it have color? And is knowing present? Awareness. It's not as if there's a looking into empty space where there's nothing. This knowing is present. We can also know the mind through the activities of the mind. Activities of the mind. Thinking is an activity of the mind. It's an expression of the mind. We can be aware of thoughts. We can be aware of mind states. We can be aware of how the mind is working. An example of this, for a moment, just sitting with a relaxed, open awareness. Not focusing on anything in particular. Just recognizing whatever the mind is aware of right now. And it's changing. And then focus the attention on your sitting bones. These sensations present but unrecognized before the attention moved there. It's the working of the mind to focus an activity of mind. Mind works by way of having reaction to experience, liking some experiences, disliking other experiences. Sometimes in looking into the mind, it's disconcerting because there's so much activity, so much going on. And we'd prefer calmness, stillness. So when we look at all of the activities of the mind, it can seem like how could one possibly gain any concentration stability of mind through simply recognizing what's going on in the mind. There's a real, what for me has been very helpful aspect to this, is that one can simply rest in the recognition, in the awareness. Learning to simply recognize 
what the mind is knowing. This uh, thinking, uh, being aware of thoughts, is a very good example of this. This is another little exercise. (laughs) Giving you a workout tonight. (laughs) So, sitting here, and again, just be relaxed, easy. And then, begin to notice thoughts. There's no thoughts. Make thoughts. (laughs) Generate thoughts. It doesn't matter what the thought is, but don't let a thought go by without being recognized. And just keep thinking. It doesn't matter. I hate this. I can't stand this. Oh, that's a good thought. I like that. Oh, look at this. Ah, shut up. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Just keep thinking and be aware. Be aware of the thinking. You can tell yourself a story if that helps. Go into a monologue of what's going on, blah, 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 blah. Just keep being aware. Noticing the difference between the thought and the awareness of thinking. Okay, relax. (laughs) When there's awareness of thought, it becomes a refuge, a coolness. There's not the involvement in the thought. It doesn't mean the thought is gotten rid of. Thinking is a natural function of the mind. Thinking is useful at times in our lives. It's not something we want to obliterate. We just don't want to be seduced by. It needs to be awareness of. Only last night, in the middle of the night, I woke up. Unfortunately, it's a common pattern. <laughs> and, you know, over the years, it's been in the middle of the night, sometimes mindfulness hasn't felt so strong. You know, just that willingness to be present. Forget it. (laughs) And what happens then is, you know, the mind goes spiraling into these thoughts. You know, next thing I know, getting worked up over something and, you know, makes for a bad night. But last night, waking up in the night, there was this thoughts. And then there was just the awareness of thinking. And immediately, there was that refuge. There was a coolness. It didn't get entangled. There wasn't something, idea that got cemented. It wasn't fed. It was just known. And this is a refuge we just overlook. And it's so simple. Awareness. Being aware of what the mind is doing, whether it's 
simply knowing, awareness of awareness, whether it's activities, whether it's thinking, whether the mind is colored by a mind state. And we get, you know, mixtures of mind state and thought. But, you know, seeing what, just having the recognition of what's happening. We don't need to fabricate anything. We don't need to get rid of anything. Because what happens when we rest with this recognition? It's a moment of mindfulness, Patricia was talking about. It's a moment of mindfulness where the mind receives data. You know, just a little snippet of information. And what happens if we have continuity of mindfulness, the mind is able to get a bigger picture, bring in more information. You know, and it's not the figuring out information. It's just, you know, it's like letting the mind be so open. It has the totality of what is, rather than being exclusive in what's being known. And it's not fighting. It's not accepting this piece, rejecting this piece. I I want this. I don't want this. It's just aware. And you start having moments of that together, moment by moment. And it's like there becomes information. And out of that information, wisdom comes. And that wisdom you know, it's like, that's those moments. Is it that we don't create? It's like, you know, you, all of this, the scene happens, and then it's like, ah, these moments of aha, the where, where things are seen in totality, in completeness. There isn't that veil, that fogginess of delusion. Part of the data we receive by being aware of the mind and its activities is being able to see a thought that actually is perpetuating suffering and a thought that is helpful, that's pointing the mind in the right direction, pointing the mind towards that which is wholesome we begin to get that felt sense of cause and effect. We begin to really unravel or, you know, it's like there's a karmic knot and it's a way of just being able to stay steady and recognize what fuels, what brings 
um, what strengthens what is wholesome, we begin to see that for ourselves. And we begin to see what really leads to more suffering. exploration of the mind it's really important to pay attention to the attitude of the mind that through which we're practicing that within this attitude that we can find at times that we are practicing from a place of greed a place of wanting a place of expectation of striving and it can be very subtle. You know, it isn't always so easy to see. You know, a slight leaning into experience as if we'll get a better experience. Trying a little bit harder and the trying being a willful determination that is based on wanting results. Sometimes our attitude is colored by aversion, not wanting. And we'll see it in little ways. You know, I have been practicing for a long time, many (laughs) decades, (laughs) and one day, I saw that my relationship to thought was filled with aversion. In the past, I had seen many times where with the recognition of thought, it would simply disappear. And yet, one day I saw that there was just this slight hint of aversion that was annihilating thoughts, that really had still had that underlying belief that to have no thoughts was best. It's amazing to see these things. Sometimes our attitude is compl- complacency or you know, just not really connecting. Um, hmm. And that just, that working of the mind is just on how we're bringing our attention to experience. Never mind what's being known. You know, it's just in how we're applying the mind. And that can go so unrecognized. You know, that's what Patricia talked about that in her last talk, when she talked about how um, she hadn't been seeing boredom when she was walking. And so many times we're not aware of the what's kind of in the background of the mind as we're practicing. 
You know, we, as Sayadaw Utejaniya says, we're so forward-looking that we don't see what's that atmosphere, what's there. When we pay attention to our attitude and we see we're practicing propelled by greed, practicing propelled by aversion, it's not to judge that. It's to really look and see, to know this, to know this as greed, to know the effect of this greed. You know, what happens when there's strong wanting in our practice. I don't know, I've sat, you know, feeling like as if the mind is just in the corner with wanting. Uh, it's just pure craving. Doesn't care what, just wants. Just to know what that is like. To know how it gets fed. really important. This is where understanding comes. This is where we can't practice blindly. You know, see for yourself the effects of how you are practicing. You know, many times if you practice throughout the day and you find you're completely exhausted at night, it can be related to how you're practicing. Because when you're practicing with right attitude, when you're practicing really letting the mind rest with what is, energy replenishes. I had such a great example of this when I first was practicing with Sayadaw Utejaniya in Burma. And, you know, with his encouragement to notice the defilements in the mind, and, you know, he really hammered on this, And, well, yes, okay, we look, and yeah, there was plenty. (laughs) And there was massive aversion, you know, aversion in many different ways, you know, seeing, you know, just as I said, around just thoughts. Just there was uh, just the scene of aversion in a lot of different ways. But the scene of it, I mean, when I saw aversion to thinking, the joy that came, it was... Amazing. The joy in seeing things how they are. You know, when you think that if you're going to see a version, wow, that's a bad show. You know, that's not true. When you see it in its nature, it lights up your heart. And that retreat, I went to the retreat completely exhausted. And I had a month off from teaching here, and it was sort of like, oh, if I don't replenish, I'm in trouble. Well, you're in trouble too. But, you know, it was just that sense that, you know, there was deep nourishment needed. And there I go, and I sit, and I see aversion. And just almost everywhere I looked, aversion, aversion, aversion. I got so rested on that retreat, so deeply nourished. 
It isn't about the object. It doesn't matter about the object. But is there a relaxed attention? Nothing having to be forced. And letting the practice be simple. Recognition of what's being known now. And keep recognizing. Keep recognizing. Now and now and now. In a relaxed way. You can let it unfold from there. It's as not as if you're going to just sit there and be a zombie to what's happening. Wisdom comes, strengthens this continuity, this gathering of information. Not to worry if you failed in school, because it's not the same kind of gathering of information. It's different. I dropped out of school, so I can say that. When we just start looking to the mind, we see all kinds of things, all kinds of understandings come. You know, the scene of, of just what we get so trapped in. Doing this with non-interference, bare attention. But remembering we need to do this moment by moment. This brings the stability. Remembering that it's not, you know, liking, disliking, accepting, rejecting. It's the recognition of what is, whether it's greed, aversion, delusion, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Not needing to judge that, but to let the understanding come. We learn that we can rely on awareness. Just that awareness, the mind knowing what's being recognized. Of course, there's complexities. 
there's complexities to emotions, the relationship between thought and emotion. Some mind states may be very strong, have for, you know, know, just the way karma has unfolded, have gained a lot of momentum. And at times, it can be too much to, to, to taking fear as an example, that the fear is so strong that just to simply be aware of it doesn't feel like enough. To have patience, to be as aware as one can, and if fear is there, to really notice the the state of the mind, the type of thoughts that are present, what feeds those thoughts, what happens when those thoughts aren't identified with, aren't taken to be true, but are just seen as thoughts. How does that affect it? If it starts to have this sense of sucking you in to experience, let the mind recognize another experience. Let the, let the attention go to something that's more neutral. Sound, hearing. We can't have expectation that wisdom's going to come immediately as we want it to. We really have to learn our part in practice what it is that we can do. And then to let the Dhamma unfold. In paying attention to the mind, we become aware of intentions the volitional formation in the mind that conditions experience. It conditions what is said. It conditions mind states, conditions actions. We begin, when we pay attention to these intentions, just in the seeing, the recognition of them, we begin to see those that are wholesome, those which, you know, that, that's those which lead to the alleviation of suffering. We begin to see intentions that, you know, just in the seeing of it, the, there's the wisdom that knows, wow, you do that, and that's going to hurt, that's going to cause pain. You know, and it, just the letting go happens naturally. It's seen for what it is. But we really have to be willing to come face to face with what arises in the mind. And these habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the different formations they have. But that's where if it's supported by right view, if, if it's supported by this is just conditions coming together, 
and not fed, not identified with. Seen as it is, This is from Sayada Utejaniya. One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched con- consistently. If you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch your mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you are responsible for it. I love that last line. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't belong to you, but you are responsible for it. Taking care with this mind. What a precious gift. Our practice is moving from the complexities and the the confusion of this mind into its simplicity, into its capacity, to recognizing its capacities. You know, another function of the mind is to recognize that which is wholesome, the qualities that are there. This uh, Minja Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher that I talked about last week, someone who I practice with, just in the teachings I received from him recently, he talked about how we don't appreciate the wholesome qualities that are there. He says there can be ten qualities in the mind, nine are wholesome, and we're going to fixate on the one that isn't. We just need to recognize what's here. Looking into the mind, we develop an honesty. You know, just that honesty I spoke about when I saw that there was aversion to thought and just how freeing that is. Being able to see anger when it's there. Not trying to deny, suppress, get rid of. But not being run by it. Not being at the mercy of it. It allows a wholehearted engagement with life. I just want to close with another teaching from Ajahn Chah. And to me, I just found it comforting. Um, Because I know that, especially in the course of a retreat where you have a designated period of time, the sense of needing to get, the sense of progress, the sense of um, needing accomplishment. And 
you know, with that, just just want to uh, put retreat more in the perspective of just a training in a simpler environment to be able to see what's happening in the mind and to develop a habit of doing that moment by moment that can be carried forth into life so that all life is practiced and that we just aren't doing a practice here that's rarefied, that we depend on these conditions to do, because that won't serve us in our life. It's not the way to utilize being here. You know, it just leads to, you know, really rarefied states of concentration that when you walk out the door are gone. And how helpful is that? You know, but what we want to see is how we can work with this mind. But anyhow, you know, I just know that as a part of being in retreat, there can come anxiety around progress, whatever. So these, this I found of comfort. Let the tree grow. The Buddha taught that with things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated karma. Yet your exertion of effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it, just as you cannot force the growth of a tree you have planted. The tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water, and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows is up to the tree. If you practice like this, you can be sure all will be well and your plant will grow. Thus you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant and be responsible for your own. If the mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is a wrong view a major cause of suffering. Take note of that one. (laughs) Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your karma. Then whether it takes one or 100 or 1,000 lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. May you be at peace in your practice. May any goodness that arises from our practice be freely offered for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.